We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. I'm bored already. Yes, I am. Stuck in the middle with you from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly. FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com, says me, if not you. Glad you could join us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure we like to call the broadcast. Uh, Coming up, Bernie Sanders speaks to a capacity crowd at Jerry Falwell's Liberty University in Virginia as he takes his campaign to the so-called Red South. And I hate that red. There are no red states. There are no blue states. There are no red states. They're all, well, they're all purple. But, uh, man, I hate that. That just works so well for, uh, for, for, for Karl Rove and his Republican game of separating this country between red and blue, left and right liberal and conservative, uh, just what nonsense. In any event, Bernie Sanders is uh, reaching out, reaching across the aisle, trying to find common ground, uh, if uh, be- being a uniter, not a divider, as me and George W. Bush like to say. Uh, speaking of comments, so we'll, we'll have some of the audio from his appearance down there at uh, Liberty University a little bit later in this hour. Speaking of common ground, however, Harlan Ullman, the man credited with the infamous shock and awe doctrine with which the U.S. began its disastrous war of choice with Iraq, he will be here momentarily to offer his thoughts on the Iran peace deal. Yes, peace deal. In my opinion, it is a peace deal. We'll see if he shares my opinion on that. And speaking of the Iran deal, MJ Rosenberg of The Nation will be here a little bit later as well today to discuss the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee or APAC, the very powerful or at least once very powerful lobbying group, Uh, to talk about uh, his contention that choosing partisan sides in the fight over the Iran deal, as AIPAC did, may very well have done in that once very powerful lobbying group. Uh, But before all of that, one uh, couple of items here that are breaking, one one of which actually I meant to get to uh, late last week and uh, we ran out of time, but it plays into this breaking news today. Uh, Last week, unprecedented rain, according to Reuters, uh, in Japan unleashed heavy floods that tore houses from their foundations, 
uprooted trees, forced more than 100,000 people from their homes. Uh, helicopters hovering over swirling muddy waters rescued many people from their roofs. Uh, some areas received double the usual September rainfall in just 48 hours. After tropical storm Itau, is that how you say it, Desi Doyen? Itau? It, I, think so. Itau? I think so. Swept across Japan's main island of Honshu. Uh, they said, uh, according to uh, NHK, the uh, news service there, we heard a huge sound like a thunderclap, and then the hillside came down, referring to a landslide that swept away his neighborhood. A further 800,000 people were at one point advised to 800,000 people were advised at one point to evacuate after officials issued pre-dawn warnings of, quote, once in a half century rains to 5 million people in areas east of north of uh, of Tokyo. Uh, these are uh, the prices, the costs that we are currently paying for climate change, for global warming. And that was, uh, in Japan, too much water just days ago. And uh, now we move out here to California. We are, of course, in Los Angeles, where it, it continues to be bone dry, although there is some rain in the offing, I'm, I'm told, in the next day or so. And we'll see if this El Nino delivers for us this year, at least uh, delivers rain. But other than that, we are at a uh, what are four year, five year. We're uh, now drought in at our this point? we're now in our fifth year of drought. And I saw a really st- Stunning statistic where a meteorologist actually said, you know, it's like the rain and snow evaporate almost immediately upon hitting the ground Mm. because it has been so hot and so dry in California. And that's the whole point of what scientists have been saying climate change does. Warming up the globe will intensify and uh, increase in frequency all of these extreme weather events. So we'll not just get more of them more often. They'll be more intense, like in Japan, getting a year's worth of rain in two days. Right. And that's exactly what we're seeing now. Uh, Obviously, these historic droughts are worst in recorded history out here in California. And now we are continuing to pay the price for that in fires. As AP reports, uh, within the hour, an explosive wildfire burned largely unchecked on Monday after incinerating hundreds of homes and devastating rural communities north of California's Napa Valley leaving at least one person dead, sending tens of thousands fleeing down flame-lined streets. But that fire is not the only one they note. A second massive blaze less than 200 miles away destroyed 135 homes as it spread uh, through Amador and Calaveras counties in the Sierra Nevada. That fire was just 30 percent contained. Both fires have now displaced some 23,000 people According to uh, Governor Jerry Brown's uh, Office of Emergency Services out here, reading about this yesterday, uh, last night, the breaking news as it was coming in from AP, 400 homes so far destroyed, uh, along with that one fatality, two apartment complexes, 10 businesses destroyed by the flames, and thousands of other structures such as barns and sheds were burning according to Cal Fire uh, spokesman uh, over the weekend. AP writes that whole blocks of houses were burned in parts of the town of more than 1,000 residents that lies about 20 miles north of the famed Napa Valley. 
on the west side of town. This is uh, Middletown, uh, California. On the west side of town, house after house after house was burned to their foundation with only charred appliances, twisted metal garage doors still recognizable. Four firefighters suffered second-degree burns. They remained hospitalized in stable condition as of Sunday night. A 78-square-mile fire is what it was, erupted Saturday afternoon and immediately, rapidly, as they say, chewed through brush and trees parched from several years of drought. Entire towns, as well as residents, along a 35-mile stretch of State Route 29 were evacuated. Governor Jerry Brown declared a state of emergency on Sunday. The fire broke out on Wednesday, was threatening about 6,400 more buildings. Uh, And uh, as people were fleeing, uh, they were fleeing. Cars were on fire. Light poles were on fire. It was an extraordinary scene as people were not just evacuated, but basically running for their lives. Uh, Meanwhile, east of Fresno, the largest wildfire in the state continues to march westward away from the giant sequoia trees. Yay. That's good news, at least. Yes, very good. Uh, That fire was sparked by lightning on July 31, has charred more than 200 square miles and was just 31 percent contained over the weekend. Uh, Firefighters have maintained a precautionary line around Grant Grove, these amazing uh, giant sequoia trees. Uh, that we've, boy, glad we've seen them. I know, and and, and the firefighters <laughs> have done a good job. There. Sequoias do have natural fire protection, but these are fires, unlike firefighters say, unlike anything they've ever seen. They're faster and more intense, burn hotter. Uh, people didn't even have any warning to get out. Some folks uh, I, I saw in some reports said they didn't even have time to put on their shoes. Yeah. That's how rapidly yeah, they had to Yeah, how quickly they had to get out. Which uh, is just a reminder, make sure that you do have an emergency go bag with all of your stuff in it because you may not have time to get anything. There are people who said, you know, we couldn't even get our birth certificates and our family photos. The uh, I just want to note that some of those sequoia trees that are threatened, although so far being protected, um, are uh, 3,000 years old, some yeah. of them, in this grove. 3,000 years old, including the... Uh, Grove, named for the uh, towering uh, General Grant, that's Grant Grove, General uh, Grant tree that stands 268 feet tall, 3,000 years old. Uh, we will see how many people, uh, how many news organizations reporting on this uh, this incredible heat and fire out here on the West Coast tie it to, oh, you know, its cause, climate change and global warming. So we will see. All right. Uh, Back to Iran here. As I said, uh, we will be speaking with M.J. Rosenberg of The Nation uh, shortly. And he contends that uh, AIPAC, the um, American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, has really done themselves in by turning this Iran matter into a partisan matter. And uh, I've referred to it on this show as the Iran peace deal. Yes, I believe it is a peace deal. But you know what? Before all of this goes away, and really it should go away, the Republicans have now lost the fight against it. uh, And Republicans and a handful of Democrats in Congress have really lost the fight against it. But I have I suspect I just have this feeling uh, this issue is going to come up throughout the presidential race over the next few uh, over the next few months. So I have been amazed at the amount of misinformation and disinformation, frankly, that has been allowed to get onto the airwaves, into the uh, into the media about this Iran deal. So let's see 
if we could make some good, hard sense of this uh, by is, is speaking with someone who I don't believe you could categorize as, uh, you know, a, a, a lefty, uh, liberal, bleeding heart peacenik like myself. Uh, Harland Ullman is a formal naval officer. He's principal author of The Shock and Awe Doctrine. You may have heard of that. He's a senior advisor at the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security and the chairman of the Killowen Group, advising leaders of government and business at the highest levels, including presidential candidates, both here and abroad. He sits on advisory boards for the Supreme Allied Commander Europe and Commander U.S. Forces Europe. He's currently a senior advisor to the Atlantic Council and business executives for national security. He's a formal uh, naval officer, as I said. He's commanded destroyers as well as swift boats in Vietnam in over 150 combat patrols and also served with a combat command in the Persian Gulf. His books include Finishing Business, Ten Steps to Defeat Global Terror, Shock and Awe, Achieving Rapid Dominance, and his latest book, A Handful of Bullets, How the Murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand Still Menaces the Peace. Harlan Ullman, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Uh, Brad, thank you very much, and that's a very, very kind introduction. Thank you very much. Well, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, having you here because it's one thing for us, uh, you know, uh, us folks in talk radio, and in my case, uh, sort of a, a progressive to talk about this uh, Iran nuclear deal. It seems to me to be a very, very good deal from what I have uh, been able to look at and, and read about the deal. And I have been amazed over the past several uh, weeks and months as it's come out how it has been turned into this uh, d dangerous thing. It's going to be uh, what Ted Cruz said, Americans will die, Israelis will die, Europeans will die. Donald Trump called it the worst deal ever. Uh, you put out a statement uh, recently on this. Uh, that has a different perspective that seems to match the perspective that I got when I read about it. And, and you talked about three different things. Uh, what happens, uh, you know, in the event that Iran does abide by this agreement uh, and a good reminder about uh, the fact that this is not a bilateral pact. Let's talk about those uh, the three points and actually the third point about the nonproliferation treaty. But uh, how do you see this uh, this deal, Harlan Ullman? Uh, let me put this in, in simple terms. Thank you. Uh, in many ways, this is rather like an arranged marriage in which both parties don't like each other and they don't trust each other. And the prenuptial agreement only got into arrangements for the dowry and not how to make the marriage work. Um, and so I think that the agreement, and I've read it very closely, I have discussed it at the very highest levels of the U.S. government. I was amazed that Iran has given up so much getting rid of 98% of its enriched uranium, uh, going down from 19,000 uh, centrifuges to 6,500, and having the sanctions only lifted after all this has been done. I, I find that, that to be absolutely remarkable. But having said that, because the politics in Washington are so pernicious, I believe if George W. Bush had submitted the same agreement to Congress, you would have the Democrats yelling, holy murder, just as the Republicans are. And I have to say that I'm a radical centrist. I think one party has lost its mind, the other party has lost its soul. And in my book, A uh, Handful of Bullets, I say that one of the greatest problems facing the world is failed government, and we certainly see it here. Now, having said that, I think that this agreement potentially is a strategic game-changer for the positive. But 
we're at the early stages, and people will be coming out of the woodwork to try to sabotage it in Iran, in Israel, and elsewhere. And unless or until this administration puts in place a regional strategy to implement this agreement, and some kind of an oversight commission consisting of very distinguished people to report back to Congress and the American public and to the U.N. and everybody else, that I think that this stands a 50-50 chance of failing, simply because this administration has been horrible in execution, whether it's the Affordable Health Care Act, mm-hmm. the pivot to Asia, uh, the reset button with Russia. This administration talks loudly, uh, but it doesn't follow up. And so, yes, this agreement could be a strategic game-changer positively, but unless or until this administration follows up with what I have suggested, Brad, uh, I'm worried that this thing could come off the rails. Well, let me ask you uh, this, uh, Harlan Ullman. And, and by the way, you, you make a good point when you say that this is, a, you know, a, a agreements between parties who that don't trust each other. And I would suspect or at least I would suggest that all such agreements like this, uh, diplomatic agreements, are between parties who don't trust each other. That's why we that's why the need for these sorts of agreements and the need for oversight of the agreement, which I believe uh, is built into this thing, and we can talk about that in a moment. But when you say that there is a need to make sure that this uh, treaty is properly enforced, you don't trust the, uh, or you're concerned at least about the uh, Obama administration's ability to do that. Is that a place where Congress could legitimately come in instead of you know screaming about how we're all going to die from this deal, but where Congress could legitimately come in and uh, develop? Uh, an oversight panel, uh, a blue ribbon commission of some some form or another to make sure that all of the requirements are met in this deal? It could and it won't because the Republicans won't tolerate it. It's just like the Affordable Health Care Act. The Republicans say repeal and replace. Nonsense. Fix it. There are a lot of things wrong with it, but fix it. And unfortunately, if the shoe were on the other foot, I think the Democrats would be just as bad. Of course, there's a lot of things that Congress could do. They could have reviewed the agreement far more rationally. I mean, any number of members before the agreement was even signed and people read it were opposed to it. Mm -hmm. But you have this broken government. You've got both sides hating each other. And so, unfortunately, getting anything productive out of uh, Congress is exceedingly difficult. Now, there are obviously arrangements in the agreement for the International Atomic Energy Agency to do the oversight, and there is a committee putting in place, put in place so that if there are any protests, there's a way of dealing with it. But that's not enough. You really need to reinforce this with a strategy. What is our strategy for the region? What is our strategy if, for whatever reason, this thing could go off track? How do you get it back on track? And for oversight, I have argued that perhaps you ought to get very distinguished Americans, such as former Senator Sam Nunn and Dick Luger, who were instrumental in nonproliferation. I mean, they, after all, had the legislation named for them mm-hmm. to co-chair this, maybe with former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mike Mullen and, and Colin Powell, so that you have some mechanism that really can take a look objectively at what's happening. This agreement is not going to work if left to its own devices. And uh, I have pleaded with the administration to do something. We will see whether they do it or not. But this, as I said, could be a a positive game changer, and it is just too potentially valuable to let it uh, rest on sheer luck or on what's already in the agreement, because I think the agreement needs reinforcement. And so if Congress uh, won't put together such a commission, you're saying now this falls solely to the uh, Obama the administration, House. the White House? Absolutely, and he ought to put, he ought to put Mitch McConnell, the, speaker, the, uh, chair, uh, the uh, majority leader of the Senate, and John Boehner, 
the Speaker of the House plus the minority leaders on this commission and have them look objectively. It's in everybody's be- Who wants Iran to have a nuclear weapon? Would anybody please stand up and say who? <laughs> and I think you're going to find nobody wants that. Okay, here's an opportunity to prevent that from happening. So how do we make it work? That needs to be the issue. But because the White House and Congress, Republicans and Democrats, uh, probably hate each other more than uh, we in Iran <laughs> do, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, uh, broken government could become the upset uh, to really hazard this agreement. There are other uh, members to this party, uh, to, to this agreement. That's something that I think is, is often overlooked. We hear a lot of, especially, again, the Republican candidates saying, oh, I'm going to tear this treaty up from day you one. Can't. You can't. You've got Britain, China, France, Russia, uh, members uh, of the permanent, Germany. Of, of permanent members of the Security Council, of the U.N. Security Council. You've right. got Germany, and you've got the EU. And right. the fact of the matter is the U.N. Security vo- voted 15 to nothing. Yep approve this agreement. And by the way, why are none of the other signatories so concerned, as concerned about this agreement as we are? That should tell you something. Well, that was actually my question. Why, if those groups are in it, and you're concerned about the oversight from the U.S., don't those other uh, contingents also have an interest in making sure that this sure, is... Sure, and that's uh, why I would, I, would, I would also put together something through the U.N. to incorporate them in the regional strategy. And this oversight group, it doesn't necessarily have to be just the United States. You could do this with a, from the uh, permanent members of the U.N. Uh, Security Council. I mean, the more groups that are here, the better off we're probably going to be, provided, you know, we just don't have a proliferation of hundreds of them. But the U.N. having one and the United States having one, it seems to me, perfectly reasonable outcomes. And uh, you had mentioned, Harlan Ullman, uh, Right when you started talking about this, that uh, you know Israel may attempt to game this thing or may attempt to you know in some way upend this thing. I have not been able to understand this. This actually seems to me to be a good deal for Israel as well. Uh, other than uh, you know Benjamin Netanyahu not uh, withstanding and his uh, histrionics on this, this seems to me to be a good deal. Peace in the region seems to be a good thing for Israel. Could you explain to me? Uh, why Israel would even consider trying to upset this deal at this point or at, at any point, to be frank? Uh, there's a degree of emotionalism and irrationality on the part of Bibi Netanyahu. Um, I mean, you can understand that Israel feels that it's surrounded, but Israel has possibly 100 nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has military superiority over everybody in the region. Um, so I just think that uh, Mr. Netanyahu is entirely overreacted uh, to all of this. Israel is far... The question is, uh, if Iran does not get a nuclear weapon, is Israel safer or not? The answer is, of course. Netanyahu simply doesn't believe Iran, in part because the uh, Supreme Leader talks about the destruction of the Israeli uh, Zionist government. Fine. But remember, in 1973, when we signed the agreements with Russia over strategic arms limitations in the ABM Treaty, mm-hmm. uh, the Soviets were saying nasty things about us. And by the way, just over 15 years which is really one of the uh, key, p- key measurement points in this agreement, the Soviet Union imploded. Now, I'm not suggesting Iran is going to implode, but 15 years from now, I think it is very likely we will see an entirely different government in Iran and not necessarily one that's being overseen by the Ayatollahs. Who knows? But the point is, this agreement, if it is enforced and if it works, gives all sorts of strategic opportunities that will make the entire world safer. And for whatever reasons, Republicans and Benjamin Netanyahu don't want to accept that. 
in large part because of their hatred and disagreement with the Obama administration, but a more objective view, I think, needs to prevail. And the problem in Washington is, you know, you can't be objective. If you stay in the middle of the road, you're going to get run over. And the left and the right are dominating politics in an obscene way, which makes rationality uh, a victim uh, to all this emotionalism. The... the the political i understand the political aims i i don't agree with them i understand the political uh, point being made by benjamin netanyahu but on a strategic level you're a military guy i'm sure you have uh you know folks who you're in touch with in israel who who are your your counterpoint there uh is there any legitimate strategic concerns that israel might have uh as far as you know with with this deal no. going forward no. absolutely not none zero but that's not done on a strategic or rational basis. This is entirely emotional. Um, and you have a right-wing government in charge who wants to raise the notion of threat as a way of rallying the Israelis. But I think if you, if you sampled any number of retired generals and um, former leaders of Mossad and Shin Bet, the Israeli secret services, my guess is you probably would have more people in favor of this agreement than those who are opposed, because if it works big supposition, if it works, everybody will be safer. And my argument is we have to do our utmost to make it work, not to abrogate it and stand in the way. And unfortunately, getting some degree of rationality in American politics today is <laughs> yes, good really luck. difficult, yes. really difficult. It is and I must say that the, the candidates on both sides are not, when, when the Republican candidates, and I repeat, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat, mm-hmm. but when they say the first thing they're going to do is in entering office is to abrogate the agreement, that is just really stupid, supposing it's working. Well, except you said uh, the candidates on both sides. Both sides are decidedly not saying that. The Republicans are saying that. The Democrats are absolutely not saying we're going to not get yet. rid of it. Not yet, but, I mean, you haven't heard from Jim Webb and uh, God knows what Bernie Sanders, I mean, uh, a legitimate socialist. Uh-huh. I mean, read his website. Uh, frightening. So I have no idea what a Sanders administration would be, would be like. Obviously, Hillary has to support it for any number of reasons, including she was Secretary of State. But the point is that uh, on the Republican side, there's irrationality right here in evaluating the agreement. I wrote a piece, my column today was an open letter to Donald Trump, saying, how do you possibly believe this is the worst ever agreement you've ever seen? I mean, that's nonsensical at face value. And as I also said in the the column, I don't think Trump knows the difference between a Cadillac and a centrifuge. But (laughs) the point is that you have to study this thing. You have to understand the benefits and the demerits of it. And from there, you can make an objective decision. But to say this is the worst ever agreement he's ever seen, I mean, that's just ludicrous. Well, it is, of course. And uh, to be fair here, Bernie Sanders, uh, despite that shot you took at him as, as frightening, and that's fine. But uh, I want to be clear, he has hailed this Iran deal as, quote, a victory for diplomacy. He has been very supportive of it. He has uh, congratulated the president and so forth for this deal. So, you know, whether he uh, enforces it, as you are concerned about Harlan Ullman, that's a different story. But he has been in favor of it. And I just want to be careful about that false equivalent that, oh, both sides are terrible. Both sides are doing this or that. Uh, There are problems with both sides. I'm not sure they're equivalent, however, at this point in in history. Well, I think in terms of the the Iran agreement, your point is well taken. But in terms of everything else, um, I mean, the Democrats don't have any real policies. I mean, take a look at what, what Sanders would do to the economy. I mean, he would destroy it. Um, and so uh, your point is fair about the Iran agreement. Obviously, the Democrats are going to be much more supportive. 
but take a look at the major issues. And quite frankly, I don't think any of the candidates have got any kind of a program, with the possible exception of, of, of John Kasich, um, that passes the common sense test. Uh, Harlan, I'll have to have. Well, I will look forward to having you back to uh, have have it out about uh, Bernie Sanders and whether he will or won't destroy the economy. Uh, I completely disagree read his, with you. Read, on that. His, read his website closely. I, I will read I will. about how he wants to benefit the middle class. I mean, he, he has a he yep. has a tirade against billionaires. There are less than 600 billionaires in this country. Come on. We've got other things to worry about. Okay, fair enough. We'll have that debate another time, only because I'm running Great. out of time, and I wanted to make sure you had a, a 30 seconds or so to uh, let us know your book, A Handful of Bullets, your newest, A Handful of Bullets, How the Murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand Still Menaces the Peace. Uh, you want to give us a quick idea what that's about, and maybe we'll uh, yeah, it wasn't, help push it, yeah, it And I hope, that, I hope people will buy it. Um, it argues that uh, after the murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife in 1914, World War One started. From there came the seeds for World War Two and the Cold War. But also, what were created were four new horsemen of the apocalypse that are the major dangers in my mind to society at large. The first is failed and failing government. We see that from Afghanistan to Zaire, with Washington and Brussels in between. Then economic despair, disparity, and disruption. Middle class here is withering. Too many people live on two dollars a day worldwide. Thirdly, is uh, religious extremism in the form of Al Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State, and finally is environmental catastrophe. Uh, there's, there are droughts and fires on the West Coast, and the East Coast is drowning in excess amounts of water. Uh, and unless we deal with corralling these four horsemen, these are the major challenges and dangers we face. And unless we understand that, uh, while I don't view any of these dangers as existential to the United States, if they are not coped with our standard of living and our expectations about the future will decline, and future generations are not going to have the same opportunities. Plus, we really will miss a greatest opportunity to transform this world for the 21st century, which is certainly within our can if we recognize what the nature of the dangers are and take effective action to correct them. Harlan Ullman, author of the book, the new book, A Handful of Bullets, How the Murder of Archduke Franz Ferdinand Still Menaces the Peace, uh, and clearly someone uh, who uh, he and I disagree clearly on many points. But I am nothing if not a uniter uh, as opposed to a divider here. And we do agree on uh, at least on this Iran issue uh, in general. And that's why I really wanted to have you come on, Harlan. And uh, sure. let, let folks know that even people who don't agree with me politically, if you look at this Iran deal with a, a sober mind, it does seem to be a good deal. Yeah, it is. It is stunning. But my point is. It's not going to work if left to its own devices. We need to put in some mechanism to reinforce it. Fair enough. Thank you very much, Harlan Ullman. Get more My information pleasure. on him and his work at harlanullman.net. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be back to continue this conversation with M.J. Rosenberg uh, over at The Nation, who says this Randall, uh could be the end of APAC, at least politically, what they've done to themselves in the midst of this fight. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now.
Christ. That's all I'm saying. Did you hear him uh, get in that cheap shot against uh, Bernie Sanders, Desi Dorian? <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was uh, Harlan uh, Ullman. My thanks to him. Uh, we will have uh, some of Bernie Sanders' commentary today uh, before nearly 12,000 people at Liberty University in, Vir- in Virginia coming up shortly. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with you. Um, Interesting piece over in the nation as uh, as the Iran deal, or at least the effort to stop the Iran deal, which I've just decided to start calling the Iran peace deal, because frankly, that's what it is. That's how I see it. No matter how Dick Cheney and the Republicans and uh, a small handful of Democrats have been trying to lie to the American people about it. It really is uh, the difference between war and peace. And in this case, peace. Uh, So writing over at The Nation, M.J. Rosenberg has an article headlined, AIPAC spent millions of dollars to defeat the Iran deal. Instead, it may have destroyed itself. AIPAC is, of course, for those who don't know, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, a very powerful lobby, which represents itself as the Jewish lobby. How much it actually represents the American uh, Jewish people is a a question that uh, we will talk about in a minute. But uh, writing in this article, uh, M.J. Rosenberg states, It is hard to exaggerate the damage inflicted on AIPAC by the congressional defeat of its efforts to torpedo the Iran nuclear deal. It is not as if AIPAC won't live to fight again, because it will, but this defeat has ruptured the status quo possibly forever. The extent of its efforts to defeat the deal was unprecedented even for a lobby known for its no-holds-barred wars against past White House initiatives it considered unfriendly to Israel. Going all the way back to the Ford administration, AIPAC and its cutout Citizens for a Nuclear-Free Iran reportedly budgeted upwards of $20 million for a campaign that included flooding the airwaves with television spots, buying full-page newspaper ads arranging fly-ins of APAC members to Washington, organizing demonstrations at offices of APAC-friendly members of Congress who were believed to be wavering and ensuring that problematic legislators were eventually warned by by precisely the right donor. Rank-and-file APAC members were largely irrelevant to the process. Money, in this case, did the talking rights M.J. Rosenberg and also the yelling and the cursing when necessary. As one congressional staffer put it to me, quote, taking money from APAC is like getting a loan from the mob. You better not forget to pay it back. They walk into this office like they own it. Well, provocative. M.J. Rosenberg, uh, during a long career in Washington, he worked as a Senate and House aide. He worked at the State Department. As a senior staffer at APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, at the Israel Policy Forum and at Media Matters for America, he is now a regular contributor to The Nation and The Huffington Post, and he joins us now on the broadcast. M.J. Rosenberg, welcome, sir. Thank you, Brad. All right. Well, you write, the powerful Israel lobby has been badly damaged by all of this, and you say that's good news for both Palestinians and Israelis. Okay, how has this uh, ruptured the status quo, as you argue, in Washington, D.C., quote, possibly forever, MJ? Well, the the, the status quo was basically uh, consisted of Congress, both the House and Senate, just rolling over and playing
being dead when uh, Israel, the Israeli government, or APAC wanted anything. I mean, there's, you know, I've been I've worked on the Hill for 20 years, and I worked at APAC. That was a long time ago. It's, uh, I know the lay of the land, and the basic way it was is if APAC says vote no, you vote no. Um, a year ago, when Israel invaded Gaza in that terrible war. There wasn't a member of Congress, I don't think. I, I I didn't see any who actually came out and said this is terrible. I mean, even Bernie Sanders, mm -hmm. you know, was uh, there's a famous clip on YouTube of him yelling at constituents who um, opposed the Gaza incursion. So here, a year later, a year later, we have the uh, uh, on uh, a vote on this issue that APAC has been pushing since 1994, and they lost overwhelmingly. And what that the what why that's good on Palestinian issues and anything related to the Middle East is that members of Congress are going to see they can do they can vote their conscience on these issues and they can get away with it because I'm predicting APAC will not be able to punish these people. There are too many of them. So I think it's it changed the terrain. The other way it changed the terrain in Washington is that the um, APAC is now basically a Republican organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, the votes they got were all from Republicans. Right. And just as you said, a few Democrats. Right. That's a complete shift. The Israel lobby was always bipartisan until now. It really legitimately was bipartisan. And now it's not. So they got their work cut out for them, but um, they're not, I, don't, I, don't, I think that this Humpty Dumpty, or whatever you call it, is not going to be able to itself together again. Well, yeah, clearly from your piece, which frankly sounds like an epitaph for APAC at this hope point. So. Uh, what, yeah, I know you hope so. What <laughs> what changed, uh, MJ? What changed in that past year? You say you know they they had their their run of the place, both Republicans and Democrats, until a year ago. What what changed? How did this come about? As you see it, well, I think the biggest. Well, one, I think they could have won this battle. I mean, uh, you know. Uh, you know, if anyone would have asked me in January, if they reach a peace agreement, can APAC defeat it? I would have said yes, that the APAC could have. But then they totally overplayed their hand. And this is mainly, this is more Netanyahu mm -hmm. than APAC. That speech that Netanyahu gave before the United States Congress, in which he, in, in President Obama's own capital, uh, you know, uh, vehemently mm -hmm. came out against the president's policy of what you correctly call, say, is a peace deal w with Iran. He was vehement. He was dismissive of Obama. And, and, uh, and on top of it is that that whole issue, which is just, they you know, talk about it, it's just a, cur a courtesy issue. Mm -hmm. Obama was not told you know, with that, that uh, Netanyahu was even coming to address a joint session. Right. So there was, I mean, this joint session was cooked up by Netanyahu's ambassador, who the ambassador, you know, his name is Ron Dermer. He's from Florida. The Israeli ambassador to the United States is an American named Ron Dermer mm -hmm. from Florida, who's a Repub who was a Republican politician until he upped and moved to Israel. So that guy sits there with, the, with Boehner's staff and cook up this scheme, and then there's APAC involved. It's run by a guy named Howard Kaur, is the head of APAC, mm -hmm. who used to work for Newt Gingrich. They cook up this scheme to humiliate, to, okay, to defeat any deal that comes up, and 
to humiliate Obama and decide, let's not even tell the administration, let's blindside them. Nobody does that. No foreign leader, probably in the history of the United States, I mean, I don't know this, I didn't look it up on Google, but I would imagine no foreign leader has ever come to the United States to address Congress and not given a heads up to the White House. Uh, yes. Uh, unprecedented. Yeah, it was unprecedented, but are, are, so are you suggest? well, actually two questions come out of that, uh, MJ. Uh, are, are you suggesting that it was so unprecedented and so outrageous that somehow it made uh, Democrats in Congress who have been supportive of APAC for so many years suddenly say, you know what, the hell with them, the hell with that. Uh, we're going to go our own way. I mean, that's that seems an extraordinary move for them to make in response uh, to Netanyahu's, uh, uh, you know, well, appearance. Actually, it's, before not, it's not that extraordinary if you look at it this way. Netanyahu was positing the choice as between saying to these members of Congress, that's the Democrats, mm-hmm. you know, are you, are you for the Israeli prime minister, me, or are you for the president of the United States? He made it that kind of choice. It was a zero-sum game. From that moment on, from that time of that speech was given, till the vote on the, um, you know, the, the war on cloture mm-hmm. that ended this whole debate this week, it was, are you for Netanyahu or are you for Obama? It wasn't Obama who made it that way. It was Netanyahu. In a way, I'm not surprised. In, in that sense... I'm not surprised they look, that the, that um, Obama won because he is the, the, you know, these these congressmen. He's their president, right? No less so for the Jewish and pro-Israel members of Congress than anyone else. It's, you know, it's funny. I I don't bother even talking about the Republicans on this because, in a way, uh, their opposition to the deal is just uh, it was just knee-jerk. Anything Obama does, they're against, yep. and they don't like this, they don't like diplomacy. Well, that- I focus entirely on the Democrats. Because when they vote against peace, they're they're voting against what they're all about. Well, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. Because yes, you're right. We know, we know why the Republicans are against this deal because it was you know happened under uh, Obama. They would have all been in favor of this exact same deal. Had anybody else yes. brought it forward, you know, any other a Republican president, George W. Bush brought it forward, they would have hailed him as a hero, a peacemaker, a united, a uniter, not a divider, and how important it is because it's got unprecedented oversight for the first time with this uh, with this country and so forth. But uh, so that's the Republicans. But what about APAC? Uh, why would that you mentioned, uh, MJ, that uh, that APAC, you know, could have defeated this? My question is, why the hell would APAC want to defeat this deal, are they simply partisans at this point themselves? Simply, uh, you know, in there with the Republican Party, or do they really see a problem uh, for Israel with this deal? Because to me, this looks like a good deal for Israel. Well, the problem, and this, and uh, for APAC and for Netanyahu, and I'll distinguish here here from Netanyahu and. Most of the Israeli security establishment, mm-hmm. which feels differently, but both APEC and Netanyahu want a war. It's not they're not looking they're they're not just looking to. Um, I mean, APEC and Netanyahu are neocons. Neoconservatives have wanted a war with Iran to eliminate the power of the Islamic Republic for decades now, because and they're because they really. They were, they really they're think that. The, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, they're using the. And they don't want a nuclear war. They would just want something where you go in and you take out their um, deterrent, you know, their whatever you would call mm-hmm. They would call it deterrent. Their nuclear facilities and whatever. And you're making sure that there'll never be peace between the United States and Iran 
ever. Well, That's you're also making want. sure that there will never be peace between Israel and Iran. You're making sure that there will never be peace uh, in the Middle East, uh, you know, and maybe that is what they want. I don't, I have never understood, you know, and I've got a lot of relatives I talk to, Jewish relatives who I talk to about this, and I've never understood uh, how they don't seem to understand how, uh, you know, what Israel does seems to perpetuate more and more war rather than peace. So I would think they would you know, see this deal with Iran uh, as a good thing, not a bad thing. And yet somehow, uh, you know, AIPAC and these other people have, have, you know, convinced them otherwise, despite all of the evidence uh, to the contrary. Well, uh, if you want you, if, yeah. if, if you believe, I mean, if Benjamin Netanyahu either believes or says he believes, and this also applies to AIPAC, mm-hmm. that the Iranian government is Hitler, and that at the first opportunity it will bomb Israel and destroy it. If you think that way, I suppose there's a certain weird logic to their position, except for one thing, that this deal prevents a nuclear Iran. Yes. They talk as if um, Obama's goal was to achieve a nuclear... They yeah. turn the whole thing around on its head. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's kind of, it's sad in a way. Well, it's ugly, and it's also sad. If you listen to a Netanyahu speech, or you go to a, you know, you listen to one of these APAC who's given their, you know, their talks at the APAC convention, they're always talking as if it's, they'll, they'll say, it's 1942 and Hitler's on the march, or it's 1938 and it's Munich. Right. It's almost like they want it to be like that. Yeah. Um, rather than to say... Israel has succeeded as a state, and it has. It's secure. It has 200 to 300 nuclear bombs. It's fairly impregnable. For them to, th- to argue as if, do you remember that thing that Huckabee said where he talked about this deal will result in Jews being dragged to the ovens? Yes. I thought that was such a revoltingly anti-Semitic remark. And I saw that, uh, the, that the president of Israel responded by saying, no one's dragging Jews to the oven. Right. And that's true. Right. Israel is the fourth strongest military power in the world. Why don't they take yes for an answer and say, look, Zionism succeeded. We have a state. It's secure. And let's, let's you know, take the last step that we have to take and we should take, which is to make peace with the Palestinians. And then we've got everything. And that's not the way that, that that is the way a large percentage of Israelis think. It's the way most American Jews think. But this right wing, we're talking about right wing Jews in Israel and right wingers here. They don't, that peace is not something that they believe in. Well, apparently not. And they're the folks, apparently, with the money. Uh, yeah. to, you know, to, to scare the uh, the Congress members. But things have uh, changed, as you note in your piece. Uh, and in the minute or two we have left here, I just want to talk about how, uh, well, you had a meeting with then-Senator Barack Obama in 2008 that you write about. Uh, and when you asked him whether he would listen to, quote, pro-peace Jewish voices on Israel or just APAC, uh, I love his response at the time. And, uh, and then I want to, you know, ask about, how J Street, well, you'll have to explain to folks who don't know what J Street is, but how that, how J Street has changed uh, the contours where it seems that APAC was the only voice for American Jewry in, in D.C. for so many years, whether they actually represented it or not. Uh, but that seems to have changed now with J Street. 
So tell us about that Obama meeting and and how that leads into J Street specifically. Well, yeah, he was um, yeah he was a candidate for president. It was before the election in two thousand eight, and I went to see him, and uh, it was a pretty frank meeting. I mean, a good meeting, and he's he's you know he's so impressive, and he said, uh, and I, I I said, well, you know, if you get if you get elected. Um, are you going to uh, are you going to pay attention to people like me into the into the the, the uh, pro Israel pro peace crowd? Mm-hmm. Are you going to are you going to you know break with APAC in this endless you know consensus for war? And he said, I can't hear you. And I said, uh, okay. And I repeated it again. And and I didn't say this in the article, but I'll tell you, saying it to you. I, he then again said, I still can't hear you. And then I understood, and he went on and said, what I mean by saying I can't hear you is I hear from APAC all the time. There's a guy named Rosenberg, which is my last name, he said, in Chicago. He, I, he calls me every Sunday. He says, is he a relative of yours? I said, no. He said, well, he's APAC, and he calls me every Sunday. He finds me on the street. He's always and, um, talking to me about you know, what Israel needs, and he has his people doing the same. But I don't hear from you, you people. If I get in the White House, it's going to be your job to make sure I can't ignore you. So what I then said in the piece is, I didn't know when he said that, that his intention was to help set up an organization that would make it impossible for him to ignore. Mm. J Street um, is, the, is a new organization. It was set up in 2008. Same time that Obama was running and, uh, and, and getting elected, it was set up by... Um, Jews who, um, you know, are for pro-peace, pro-Palestinian state, and you know, uh, anti-occupation mm-hmm. uh, people, and uh, to be a counterweight to um, APAC. Initially, and for the first few years, it was ridiculous. They have no, hardly any money uh, when APAC has all this rich money, be- you know, big money behind it. They were having very little influence. They couldn't even get anybody to accept their endorsements. They would go around trying to find people to endorse, and people would say, no, 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 don't endorse me, because that would hurt with the APAC crowd. Well, what Obama did over the vehement opposition of the mainstream Jewish community, he started inviting J Street to every meeting at the White House where he had Jewish organizations in. He, whereas in the old days, they would only have the kind of right-wing organizations mm-hmm. like um, American Jewish Committee and APAC and American Jewish Congress and B'nai B'rith and all those. He, Obama, said, I want them at the table. It was this one, the uh, president or the founder of, a, of J Street, Jeremy Ben-Ami, was at every meeting that Obama has ever had with Jewish leaders. And that elevated J Street. J Street was started being able to raise money. J Street started getting on television because Ben Ami is able to discuss his meeting with the president. And by the time this Iran thing rolled around, they were in a position to actually be the counterweight. So that the news media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, um, uh, the television and radio, people would you know put J Street on as the alternative. Mm-hmm a pro-Israel alternative showing that the alternative to being APAC is not being anti-Israel. Right. It's to, being, it's, it's to be being pro-Israel and pro-peace. Right. And uh, so it's, you know, it, it's not a coincidence that uh, J Street and Obama came at the same time. It really is Obama's doing. And uh, today, today in the New York Times, this is just so amazing, having watched J Street's progress, 
they had a two-page ad, two full pages, across two full pages, just saying, you know, congratulations, we, you know, we won. Well, you know, that kind of ad costs like $200,000. And uh, when they started, they didn't have a $200,000 budget. Right. So um, this is a new, it, and it's, it, it's really good because it enables people who want to be pro-Israel but can't stand the occupation and can't stand Netanyahu yep. to have a way to be pro-Israel and pro-Palestine and pro-U.S., all at the same time. So it really is a it's it's a major change. Uh, it is uh, the rise of J Street, and maybe as you predict in your article at the Nation, MJ Rosenberg, maybe the fall of APAC. Check out MJ Rosenberg's piece over there at the Nation. APAC spent millions of dollars to defeat the Iran deal. Instead, it may have destroyed itself. And of course, MJ Rosenberg has been celebrating ever since. <laughs> great, great to talk to you, MJ. I, okay, I really appreciate you, it. You bet. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, it really is amazing the way things have changed, uh, MJ writes in that piece, that APAC's power is built on the belief that it cannot be challenged with impunity, a belief that is on the verge of being exposed as illusory. In 2014, it was hard to find a single Jewish member of Congress, not even Bernie Sanders, who would break with APAC's support for Israel's war on Gaza. One year later... Nine of 11 Jewish senators and most of the Jewish House members are bucking APAC and the Israeli government on, of all things, the Islamic Republic of Iran. Yes, things are changing, I would suggest, for the better. All right, a quick break, and we will be back with much more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Senator Bernie Sanders stepped into what CNN describes as a hotbed of cultural conservatism at Liberty University on Monday. He told a capacity crowd of nearly 12,000 people that restricting access to abortion was, quote, improper. And yet he was trying to find common ground with these folks who are uh, believed to be uh, conservative, these uh, students at Liberty University. There were a lot of uh, Bernie Sanders supporters on hand there, however. Here are uh, some of his comments on Monday. Bernie Sanders speaking at Jerry Falwell's Liberty University. Let me uh, start off by acknowledging what I think uh, all of you already know. And that is the views that many here at Liberty University have and I on a number of important issues are very, very different. I believe in women's rights. And the right of a woman to control her own body. I believe in gay rights and gay marriage. Those are my views, and it is no secret. I came here today because I believe from the bottom of my heart that it is vitally important for those of us who hold different views to be able to engage in a civil discourse. 
It would be hard for anyone in this room today to make the case that the United States of America, our great country, a country which all of us love, it would be hard to make the case that we are a just society or anything resembling a just society today. We live, and I hope all of you know this, in the wealthiest country in the history of the world. But most Americans don't know that because almost all of that wealth and income is going to the top 1%. When we talk about morality, and when we talk about justice, we have to, in my view, understand that there is no justice when so few have so much and so many have so little. That was 2016 Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders getting a, a pretty warm welcome uh, before the largest Christian college in the world, Liberty University, on Monday. Jerry Falwell's Liberty University on Monday. Reaching out, finding common ground. That's just what we do here on this program. And we're going to be doing it again tomorrow. For today, my thanks to you and to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, MJ Rosenberg of The Nation and Harlan Ullman of harlanullman.net. If you missed any portion of the show, you can, as always, download it, download it from bradblog.com or iTunes. If you have any uh, disagreements or agreements with the show, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can and should follow me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the TheBradBlog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Yeah.